Amen. I invite you to take your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 26. It's weird, my Bible just kind of wants to fall open to Matthew now. I wonder why. Father, we come to your word because it is your word, because it is inerrant, it is infallible, it is sufficient. We believe sola scriptura, that your word is the final say, the final truth. And Lord, we believe in totus scriptura, we believe all the scripture is applicable to us. It all fits together uh, as, a, as a single unit of revelation, and we give you thanks for that. Would you help us today as we come to your word? That we would understand and, and believe that we would know these truths, and that knowing the truth, we would be free. And we thank you in Jesus' precious name for this. Amen. Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 to 29. Matthew writes, Now while they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it. And giving it to the disciples, he said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. It's, it's interesting. Matthew is writing this not merely as a gospel, not merely as revelation, but as a witness and as a participant in this. And he very easily could have said, now while we were eating, Jesus took some bread and after a blessing, he broke it and giving it to us. He distances himself from it to speak of the disciples as a whole and to include us at least in the spirit of what's happening. But we remember that Matthew was actually there participating in this. So in the timeline of the Gospels, it's Thursday of Passion Week. The sun has set. Passover has begun. Uh, a few weeks ago, I made the comment that Passover was the 14th day of Abib or Aviv. Um, and then a week or two ago, I said, well, that was kind of incorrect. It's the 14th day of Nisan. And then I realized I was incorrect both times. So in the, in the Pentateuch, the first, day, the first month is Aviv or Abib. Ab and V are related in Hebrew. Beginning in the book of Esther and moving on in Israel's history, the first month is Nisan. So I was right both times and my correction was wrong both times. So just don't worry about it. Different months, same months. It's, it's the day that the Lord accomplished the Passover in Egypt. He had told Moses uh, several days before that, on the 10th day of the month, you're to take a male lamb into your household, you're to keep it, you're to slaughter it on the, the 14th day of the month, smear its, smear its blood on the door posts and the lintel that's the top of the door. You're to roast it. You are to uh, eat it hastily, dressed for travel, sandals on your feet, and your walking sticks in your hand. 
be prepared to go. What's happening is the Lord is delivering his people from Egypt in that original historical Passover. Nine plagues had come against Egypt. Water was turned to blood. There were gnats. There were flies. uh, I'm sorry, frogs and gnats and flies. There was the death of, of livestock. Boils hit the people. There was hail. There was locusts. There was darkness over the land. As you read in Exodus about each one of these plagues, there there are a few times when it says these things specifically did not come against Israel. I think none of them came against Israel. Several other times, Moses says to Pharaoh, this is going to come against you and your house and your people. He doesn't say this is coming against everybody in the land. He, He specifies the Egyptians. But the Hebrews were vulnerable to this 10th plague. I don't think that it was simply about putting an end to the Egyptian gods and judging the people of Egypt. Death is the punishment for sin. Being God's chosen people didn't protect the Hebrews from that. They were vulnerable to it. The same death that struck the Egyptians would come against them. The the death of the firstborn was not just a punitive act against Egypt. It was a punitive act against all life in Egypt because of God's judgment against sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All face the same judgment of death. But Yahweh provided a protection for his people. And we know what that protection was. Again, they were to take that male lamb into their homes, slay it on the 14th, put the blood on the door, roast the meat, eat it in haste with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. And God says, I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh, and the blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are. And I will see the blood, and I will pass over you, and there shall be no plague among you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. They're not excused by virtue of being Hebrew. (coughs) They can take refuge, though, behind the blood of the Lamb. The Exodus was a defining moment for Israel. Yahweh is the God who brought them out of the house of slavery and delivered them out of the land of Egypt. Exodus 22, uh, chapter 20, verse 2, as he comes into the Ten Commandments, that's exactly how he introduces himself. And the Old Testament, Old Testament makes hundreds of references to God delivering his people out of Egypt. It's definitional of his relationship with them, of his care for them, and their relationship with him. God told Moses to command the people to observe the Passover every year afterward. And they did for a long time. But eventually, as the people fell into idolatry and paganism, Passover became forgotten. It became so rare in the land that in Second Chronicles, we're told that during the reigns of Hezekiah and Josiah, special proclamations were made to celebrate the Passover. In fact, Hezekiah sent, a, sent letters throughout the land saying, you're going to do this. And he had to send the letters because nobody was doing it. They had forgotten. And during that entire time from that historical Passover all the way up till the first century before Christ. The Passover observance was simple. Roasted lamb, unleavened bread, bitter herbs. Simple, straightforward. In the first century before Christ, 
the rabbis, the, the Pharisees, began to create an order for the observance. Um, the, the Pharisees seemed to come into existence after the return from exile. The people had become so idolatrous that they were driven, taken into exile in Babylon. They were held there for 70 years. The kingdoms, both kingdoms were, were collapsed. The temple was virtually destroyed. And I, I think, and I think others believe as well, that the Pharisees took this approach because they wanted to make sure that the people remained faithful. And so they created, they were kind of the first Methodists. They created a method to follow. Here's the pattern to follow. Well, now they do that with Passover. You, you know the word Seder, some of you at least, that the Passover observance is called the Seder. The word Seder is the Hebrew word for order or arrangement. And so they began to create this order. At the end of the second century, we have the first written document that survived that describes that order, and it's pretty close to what they have today. That was actually finalized somewhere in the fourth century, and it's virtually what they do today. Different definitions, different meanings, but the same process. We don't know what Jesus and his disciples did, but they would probably followed some part of this order. We're just not told. Now, as we look at the passage, I wanted to point out a few things about the passage itself. And then I want to talk about the Lamb of God and the significance of the Lamb today. The words here are familiar to us. We read them or, or in one form or another from Matthew, Mark, or Luke, or 1 Corinthians 11 every month. So we don't need to spend a huge amount of time even explaining this. It's fairly straightforward. But I want to point out three things to you that you'll say, well, yeah, that's obvious once I point them out. The first thing is that the scriptures keep the focus on Jesus. Matthew doesn't even bother to tell us that they, that they ate or they drank. Luke doesn't tell us that. 1 Corinthians doesn't tell us that. Mark does say they drank, but it doesn't, he doesn't say that they ate. The point is not to put any of that into question. The point is that there's a spotlight on Jesus. And the gospel writers didn't want to shift that spotlight at all. The assumption is that they did eat and that they did drink. Jesus takes the bread. He blesses God. He breaks it. He distributes it. He commands it, commands them to eat. He takes the cup. He gives thanks. He gives it to them. He commands them to drink. It's all about him. He's in the center. He's the focus. Second, we see that Jesus defines the meaning of it. This is my body, he says. This is my blood. That's the foundation of, of what he establishes in this first Lord's Supper, which, as I pointed out a week or two ago, was the last Passover. It's the last Passover because he accomplished it once for all time. And it doesn't need to be repeated. But it's the first Lord's Supper that will be observed repeatedly. There are different false views of the Lord's Supper that put the focus on the elements themselves. Uh, Roman Catholic transubstantiation says that through a miraculous act uh, at the work of the priest, the bread and cup actually become the body and blood of Jesus. Not in what 
philosophically are called the accidents, that is the appearance and the flavor and the feel, but in the incidents, in its actual substance. It's the body and blood of Jesus as it truly is, but in disguise. That's unbiblical, and it goes far beyond what scripture says. The Lutheran view of consubstantiation says that the elements don't become the body and blood of Jesus, but the body and blood of Jesus are spiritually joined to them. They coexist with them in that, in that same place. So there's not a transformation, but there is a joining. And again, that just goes far beyond what the scriptures say. The scriptures define the Lord's Supper as an act of remembrance and an act of proclamation. As an act of remembrance, in Luke twenty two nineteen, the Lord says, do this in remembrance of me. Paul wrote the, the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. By the way, Paul says, I received this directly from revelation from the Lord Jesus. Paul wasn't handed it by Peter, who's supposed to be the first pope for Roman Catholics. But Paul didn't get it from the apostolic line. He received it by direct revelation from the Lord. I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. In partaking of the bread and cup, as we will do later this morning, we are to actively remember that Christ's body was given for us and that his blood was shed for us. There's a sweetness to this moment. No matter how long you've known the Lord, and some of you came to Christ as children. You don't remember. That's okay. Salvation doesn't require that you remember when. But those of us who came to Christ later, we remember that moment. And it doesn't matter how long you followed him, how long you've trusted him, what you've done in ministry, how much of the Bible you know, how much doctrine you know. It doesn't matter. He takes you back to the moment of your spiritual birth to say, this is for you. Do you remember that? This is the first love he wants us to remember. I'm reminded in the, the Lord's Supper that Jesus died in my place and shed his blood for my forgiveness. It's not that in the Lord's Supper he's dying all over again. We don't represent him as a sacrifice, as some do, and call it a mass and have an unbloody sacrifice. He died once for all time. We remember that his death was once for all time. And that it is as sufficient for you today in your walk with him as it, as it was the first day you trusted him. Nothing has changed. It's also an act of proclamation. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six says, For as often as you drink, eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes. So we don't tell sinners, no, you're not good enough. This is not for you. We tell sinners, yes, the Lord's Supper is for you if you believe. If you believe. What better picture could there be for an unbeliever than to say the body of Jesus was given for you on the cross. The blood of Jesus was shed for you on the cross. He died for the ungodly. So even the Christian who says, 
I'm not worthy because I've sinned is mistaking, uh, mistaken about what the word unworthy means. When Paul says anybody who does this in an unworthy manner faces the judgment of God, he's not saying anybody who does this in a sinful state, of course we're in a sinful state. He says the person who doesn't recognize, who doesn't discern the body of Jesus is in a sinful state. The person who just takes the bread and the cup as a, as a mid-sermon snack and says this is meaningless is under the judgment of God, even as a believer, and he will deal with them as his children. The person who comes and says, I need this body. I need the blood of Christ because I continue to sin. I continue to need sanctification. I continue to bring my sins before him, is eating in a worthy manner. That proclamation takes place until Jesus returns, Paul says. That's because Jesus is saving sinners until he returns. He hasn't stopped. The rate at which he saves in any given place changes. There was a time in the United States and England during the Great Awakening where people came in droves. We're not seeing that in our time. We are seeing that in other lands. But he is still saving sinners. So the first thing is that it's all about Jesus. The focus remains on him. Second, we see Jesus defines what it means as an act of remembrance and an act of proclamation. And third, Jesus says he is going to abstain until he shares it with all his people in the Father's kingdom. In the scriptures, eating and drinking together is, a, is an emblem, a sign of fellowship and intimacy. Contrary to that, we see in Genesis 18, Yahweh takes on human form, two angels take on human form, those three go to Abraham at the Oaks of Mamre. Abraham gets up, he greets them. He and Sarah rush off to prepare a meal before him and they set it before him, but it never says Abraham and Sarah ate with them. They weren't in fellowship with them. They were wonderful hosts, it's great hospitality, but they didn't presume to say, we are of you, we are in fellowship with you. They, with, they held back. On the other hand, in Acts chapter 2, after that, that wonderful sermon of, of Peter's, where it describes the practices of the early church, it says in verse 46, the saints were devoting themselves with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, taking their meals together. This is on a daily basis. So all of a sudden, 3,000 have been born again, and more are coming every day, and they recognize the kinship that they have with Christ and with one another. And they say, of course I would eat with you. Of course I would drink with you. We're brother and sister. We're brother and brother. Of course I would do that. Of course I would do that. And perhaps that's part of the issue. Linda pointed out later this morning, or earlier this morning, perhaps that, that's the issue when Paul rebukes Peter because Peter had been eating with the Gentiles and then he, 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 he removes himself from them when the people from Israel or for the people from Jerusalem come. And Paul stands up and publicly rebukes him because Peter was misdisplaying, wrongly displaying the gospel. The gospel says there is one people of God. There is not male or female, slave or free, uh, Jew or Gentile. 
And when we divide on that basis, we're mistaking the gospel for something that it's not. It joins us together with Christ, and it joins us together with the Lord Jesus. So Jesus promises to abstain until he drinks it new with us in his Father's kingdom. He's not engaging in partial fellowship with anyone right now. When John finally arrived as the last living apostle, when he finally died apparently of old age and arrives in heaven, Jesus doesn't take the 13, you know, or yeah, you've got Matthias, but then you've got Paul. He doesn't take them into a private room and have their own little celebration. He's surrounded by saints going back to Adam. And he says, we're going to wait. We're going to wait because we still have family who's not here yet. If you've ever traveled at Christmas to family or at Thanksgiving or at Easter, everybody's there except one family. They're a little bit late. What do you do? You don't eat. You wait. And when, you, when there's little kids, somebody's going to be late. But you wait. Why? Because you're family. So Jesus is waiting until I think the marriage supper of the Lamb. I think that that's the picture here, although he doesn't put it that way. And he won't engage in partial fellowship with some of his people. He's waiting until we're all together. Because we're joined to him and we're joined to one another as well. That's the passage. But I want to talk a little bit about Jesus, the Lamb of God. You see, he's celebrating Passover. When John calls him the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world in John 1, 29 and 36. When the scriptures call him the Lamb, what is it that they're getting at? Well, Passover, the historical Passover, was Yahweh's means of protecting his people from his temporal judgment of death. It was not a full judgment. Not everybody in Egypt faced this, only the firstborn of the households and of the flocks. So it's a sign, but it's a sign that everybody deserves death. He's just making that point and underlining it and then protects his people by the blood of a lamb. The wages of sin, which we all deserve, is death. And Romans 6.16 says, Those who are slaves to sin, who remain slaves to sin, will die eternally under the judgment of God. So God gives his son as the last Passover, as the true Passover lamb, not as a, just as a refuge from temporal punishment, from earthly suffering, but a permanent refuge from the eternal judgment of God that is coming. So the historical Passover lamb points prophetically to the eternal Passover lamb. And so Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, clean out the old leaven. Leaven is often, not always, but often a picture of sin. Clean out the old leaven, repent of your sin, so that you may be a new lump. And he means a new lump of dough. It seems like I feel lumpy most of the time anyway. But that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. Sin has been separated from us. Even though we continue to sin, I'll leave you to read Romans 7 on that. And then he tells us why. For Christ, our Passover lamb also was sacrificed. That's been done. The Passover lamb has been sacrificed for your sins. 
and God has in him passed over you. That night in Egypt, that historical Passover, God passed over his people. He didn't bring temporal judgment of death on the firstborn. 2,000 years ago, Yahweh poured out all the death faced by his people on his son, the true Passover lamb. Not taking away temporal judgment only, but his wrath and his judgment against us. See, every household in Egypt owed him a death. Everyone. And he came that night to collect. But those that slew the lamb and put the blood on the doorway and then ate the lamb, roasted, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, were saying by all of that, here's your death. We owe you a death. You're accepting a substitute. Now we in Christ, and we see the picture in, in the Lord's Supper we in Christ, when God comes to us, in a, in a sense, and says, you owe me a death, we now point to the cross of Jesus. We point to our Passover lamb and say, there's my death. I look to Jesus on his cross. And he's borne my death. Peter then urges us to holiness in light of this. He says, and if you address as father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your sojourn, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your futile conduct inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. It's interesting to me that Exodus 12.5, as it describes the Passover, says the Passover lamb must be male. Must be a male lamb. Male lambs were not part of the regular sacrificial system in Israel. Female lambs were, were, could be, were acceptable as a sin offering. Male lambs were part of an offering for a leper who wants to be cleansed. And when Israel entered the land and each tribe was to make sacrifices on subsequent days, one of those sacrifices was a male lamb. But you won't find male lambs represented as a general sacrifice. Only in the Passover, God sent his son. He's tied all of these pieces together for us. Jesus is our Passover lamb, unblemished and spotless. His blood redeemed us from sin. It freed us from God's judgment of death. Caused us to be born again. He is the Lamb of God in whom we take refuge and find life. When you get to the book of Revelations, Jesus is referred to throughout the book, but the most common reference is to him as a lamb. And we tend to think of lambs as, as being uh, weak, and vulnerable as being soft or powerless or a victim. But the Lamb of God in Revelation receives worship and adoration. He pours out his wrath on the wicked. He redeems Israel. He provides for and leads and comforts his people. And in eternity, he with the Father will be our sanctuary and our light. So he's not soft or powerless or a victim. He's the mighty one who powerfully delivers his people. 
and powerfully judges the wicked. In fact, something to contemplate just for a moment, Revelation chapter 20 verse 10 says that the wicked will be tormented forever in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb of God. Not the judge of God, not the son of God, not the word of God, the Lamb will observe their suffering for all eternity. We won't. We won't see it. That will be closed off to us. But the torment of the wicked doesn't happen in a hole somewhere where they're buried and forgotten. It happens judicially in the knowledge of God. And he will constantly observe it. As we bring this home then, what do we have in Christ, our, our Passover lamb? And you have a number of verses there. Through the lamb of God, Jesus, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We have new birth and new life. By the blood of the lamb, we overcome sin in the world. The lamb is our shepherd who guides us and provides for us and comforts us. We have the sure and certain promise that the wicked will not prevail forever, but will face the wrath of the lamb. We have the sure and certain knowledge that our names are written in the lamb's book of life and will never be erased. How do we know that, we're, that they're written there? Because the lamb has given us faith in what he has done. We have the sure and certain promise of being at the marriage supper of the lamb as his bride. We know that God will be our eternal temple and eternal light and the lamb as well. And we have the, the promise of eternal life because a river of the water of life flows from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And I've, I've put a number of other things that we have in Christ because truly every blessing that we have in the, in the heavenly places is, is a result of the Lamb of God being slain for us. And so I don't pretend to know what you need this morning, not in any detail, but I believe this, I believe that there's nothing that is not granted to you by the blood of the Lamb, in whom you have taken refuge by faith. So in a, in a, in a few minutes, as we move into the celebration of the Lord's table, I'm going to pray. We're going to take a couple of minutes to prayerfully consider how the Lord has met our needs. And I urge you to, to be examining this. And if, if you find an item here and you say, that doesn't seem to be mine, I'm not sure that that's mine, then I invite, invite you to confess that doubt and ask the Lord to persuade you by his word and by his spirit of what he has given you. With, with all the tenderness and compassion of my heart, I urge you to rest in the arms of the Lamb of God. Trust him to do what he's promised to do. The promises of God are not dependent on how you feel or I feel. And so again, if you see something up there that doesn't seem to be yours, confess that doubt and ask him to persuade you of the truth of it. And I think it's okay to ask him to persuade your heart of the reality of it, that you would hold